Now we're launching a new sermon series into this 40 days of prayer and the season of renewal. We're calling it Counterculture. And here's what I want you to think about before Caleb comes to preach. I want you to think about uh, the cultures that exist uh, around us. And I say cultures, plural, purposefully. And here's the three cultures, there's probably more than this, but here's the three main cultures that I want you to use as the framework as we move into this series. The first culture is certainly the culture around us, the, the, the culture at large, just you might call it the culture of the world, uh, that is just naturally who we are and how we function uh, apart from God and apart from his redeeming work and purpose in, in our lives. The second culture, though, is the culture of the church. And sometimes the culture of the church, we can certainly express things that are what we need to be expressing, expressing but sometimes the church can begin to adopt things into the life, into the rhythms of what we do and why we do it that actually look more and are actually aligned more to the world than they are to the kingdom, even though they're a part of the church culture. And so the third culture that I want you to think about is the kingdom culture, the way of the kingdom of God. And sometimes the way of the kingdom of God is actually countercultural to the way of the church's culture. Sometimes we look more American than we do kingdom. Sometimes we look more like what we want the church to look like than what Jesus has designed the church to look like. And what Jesus lays out for us in the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, 1 through 12, is what the kingdom culture is to be. And as we press into these Beatitudes over the next several weeks, I think you're going to see, wow, there are things that we have adopted as a way of the culture of the church that are not the way of the culture of the kingdom. And we need to repent and we need to be renewed. And so that's the framework I want you to be thinking about. Which current are we swimming with? Are we swimming with the current of the world and its culture? Are we swimming with the current of the church and sometimes it's not the way that we need to be swimming? Or are we swimming full on with a current of the kingdom of God? Let me pray, and then Caleb will come. Father, would you teach us? Would you teach us deeply what is the way of the kingdom according to you, Jesus? And so, Father, give us receptive hearts. Give us alert minds. And Holy Spirit, would you come? And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning, Perimeter. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 5. As we start this new series, we're going to be looking at the first little piece of what may be the most famous sermon that Jesus ever preached. Uh, one that has captured the imagination of people both inside and outside the church. People as diverse as Tolstoy and Gandhi, Bonhoeffer, and Martin Luther King. And what makes this sermon what we famously have known as the Sermon on the Mount, what makes it so compelling, uh, it's evident from the very first verses. Uh, Jesus, in these very first verses, he drops us into this upside-down world of the kingdom. And before we come to this moment, uh, Jesus, Jesus has begun his ministry. He's preaching the kingdom. He's called the disciples. He's healing the sick. He's casting out demons. And then Matthew tells us that Jesus, in words that should make your mind wander back to the story of Exodus and the giving of the law on Mount Sinai, it tells us that he went to the top of a mountain and he sat down and then he opened his mouth. And Jesus, in the verses we're about to read, 
Jesus puts his finger on the one question that every man, woman, and child, no matter when they've lived, has asked. How do I become happy? How do I become someone who is alive in the fullest sense of the word? How do I flourish? And Jesus gives an answer that on the surface seems upside down in every single way possible. And we're going to read the whole of the Beatitudes here, but we're going to focus today just on verse 3. Read this with me, starting in verse 1. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we ask this morning, Lord, would you come and would you lift the veil that has covered so many of our eyes? Lord, that veil that keeps us from seeing things as they actually are. Lord, that veil that blinds us to the glory of Jesus and the wonder of his kingdom. We ask, Lord, would you now, through your spirit, as the good shepherd of the sheep, would you call us by name and would you bring us home? Would you show us yourself and all your glory and goodness? In Jesus' name. Amen. Before I came here to Perimeter, I served for a while as a youth pastor at a church in Augusta, and we took our high school students on a mission trip, as you often do in youth groups, to the country of Haiti. And I don't know if you've ever been to the country of Haiti, but it was a shock to our systems. You know, I've been overseas. I've seen poverty. I've seen the slums of Trinidad. I've been in far out places in Russia. I've been into the hills of Appalachia. I've seen poverty up front, but it was absolutely nothing compared to what we saw in Haiti. You got off the plane and you went out of the airport and it was like this wall of brokenness just hit you because it wasn't like a pocket of poverty over here or a neighborhood over there, or a particular city, or a particular region, it was mile after mile after mile after mile, as far as the eye could see, of broken buildings and broken people. And I remember sitting there and just soaking it in and wondering in my heart, Lord, I know you're going to redeem all things. I know you're one day going to make it whole, but this place feels so broken, I don't see how it could possibly happen. And when we got to the compound where we were staying, a place that was really nice by Haitian standards, Uh, we immediately realized we weren't home anymore. It was 100 degrees during the day, and it was 100 degrees at night, and there was no air conditioning. Uh, Electricity was something that was there one hour and then gone the next. 
Uh, water was something that you only had in scarce supply. And then we begin to hear the stories of the people who would come into this missionary compound, all of them with needs. They would hear stories of families who were so poor that they had taken their kids and given them to orphanages because at least there they knew they would eat food. People who were in dire need of medical care but who had no place to go and no money to pay even if they did and so they were coming to the missionaries who had maybe a little more medical ability than I did and they were asking them, begging them for help. And every night we would get together as a group and we would sit in a circle and we would talk about the things that we had seen and experienced that day. And every night this was the conversation. We were all absolutely shocked at how incredibly blessed we were. Blessed to live in a land where we had access to medical care. Blessed to live in a place where there was air conditioning and electricity, where food, where it was never really a question if food was going to be there, it was more a question of what that food was going to be. Blessed to have come here for a few days and blessed that in a few more days we were going to be going home. And in the years that I've thought back on those conversations, there's a part of that that was good. It was good to have our eyes open to the way things are in the rest of the world. It was good to have our hearts broken for the sake of those who were poor and needy. It was good for us to find ourselves giving thanks for the things that God had given to us. But there was also something else there that I don't think I could put my finger on until just recently. Everything that we said, it expressed a very particular and limited view of flourishing. One that was completely and totally limited to the physical and material things that we get in this life. Things that we could see with the naked eye. We all do this, don't we? I mean, just think for a second, who is it that you think of when you think of someone who's flourishing? Is it the person whose career is on the ascent or is it the person who's just been fired from their job? Is it the one who's happily married or is it the one who's just suffered through the pain of a divorce? Is it the one whose body looks like the model on the magazine cover? Or is it the one whose body is being ravaged by disease? Is it the big church with the big steeple and the big congregation and the big budget? Or is it the church planted in the middle of a pandemic surviving in a high school gym? Which one's flourishing? Jesus in Matthew 5, he takes all of those things that we would typically think of as flourishing, that we would typically think of as blessed, and Jesus blows them all out of the water. He gives us in these eight or nine beatitudes, depending on how you break this down, this, this picture of the disposition or the way of being of someone who is a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, of someone who is a disciple of Jesus, of one who is truly flourishing, and Jesus does it with one purpose in mind. Not that we would simply see it, but that we, through the power of the Spirit, would be invited to share in the same, to share in flourishing that is more than a mental state, that is more than a feeling that is here one moment and gone the next, 
more than a set of circumstances that could change at any moment, but instead an irreversible condition of life established by God himself. And there's two things we have to recognize right from the start. One, every single thing Jesus describes here, these are spiritual qualities and not material ones. And two, what Jesus describes as flourishing is a way of being and life that on the surface looks like flourishing's exact opposite. It's not the powerful who are flourishing, it's the meek. It's not the ones who are full who are flourishing. It's the ones who are hungry. It's not the ones whose lives are full of laughter who are flourishing. It's the ones who are mourning and crying and beating their breasts. And it is an upside down, things are not what they seem reality that shows up in the very first beatitude, perhaps most clearly of all. A beatitude that serves as a doorway into this way of life with the king. A beatitude that tells us that everything here, it is not because of human merit. It is not because of something we earned. It is instead a gift of grace bestowed on us by a gracious redeemer. Because Jesus says what? Blessed are who? Not the rich, but the poor in spirit. Why? Because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says the one who is flourishing is the one who has first received a gift that looks like a curse. They've received the gift of poverty. Blessed are the poor in spirit. You know, whatever your vision of flourishing, my guess is that's not it. And yet Jesus says that the one who is truly flourishing, it's not the one who to the eyes of the world seems nearest to God or whose life seems most put together. It is in fact the one who on the surface seems to be the furthest away. And Jesus uses this word, this Greek word that shows up extensively in the New Testament, this word that's translated here as poor, a word that almost every instance, with the exception of just a few, it refers to those who are materially and physically poor. It, it is people who are on the lowest rung of the social and economic ladder. It is the oppressed and the desperate. It is those who have been persecuted. It is those who have absolutely nothing to their name. It is those who are poor like Lazarus in Luke 16. A man who was starving in the streets, whose body was covered with sores, and who had those wounds licked by dogs. It's the kind of person that if we were to put this in terms our culture understands, it's the kind of person who's been evicted from house after house, who can't seem to stay ahead of their creditors and can't seem to hold down a job, and who survives day to day only by the intervention and the charity of others. It's the kind described in Matthew Desmond's book, Evicted, these individuals and families that live on the economic razor's edge where the slightest gust of misfortune, the slightest mistake can send you spiraling down into a whirlpool of poverty from which there is no escape unless someone or something intervenes. The kind of people that all of our lives we have aspired not to be. And yet Jesus doesn't just say, Blessed are the poor, does he? He adds something else. 
In Luke 6, in that version of the Beatitudes, Luke says, Luke 6, verse 20, blessed are those you who are poor. And just stops, full stop. But in Matthew 5, Jesus adds this little phrase. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. He locates that poverty in the realm of feeling. Now, if you're an astute reader of the Bible, you look at that and you might think, on the surface, is there a contradiction here? You know, is Luke in his, ver- in his Jesus, is he saying something different than Matthew in his Jesus? Well, the answer to that is just a really simple no. And here's why. Because in the Hebrew mind, in the world of the Old Testament, the concepts of poverty and piety are so intertwined that oftentimes they are spoken of as though they are one and the same thing. There is a category of people in the Old Testament whose lives because of oppression and violence and famine, who because of circumstances that have come upon them, have found themselves in a place of utter dependence upon the Lord where they are crying out to him to deliver. It's the ones being referred to in Psalm 34 when the psalmist says, this poor man cried and he answered me. It's who God is speaking to. In Isaiah 61, when he says, when the Messiah comes and the spirit of the Lord falls upon him, he will preach good news to who? The poor. It is people who, because of life circumstances, have been brought to a feeling of their spiritual bankruptcy, and so they begin to cry to God, please deliver, save me. It's the prodigal son who has squandered his father's money and found himself sitting in the pigsty covered in dirt and grime and wishing that he could eat the food the pigs are eating and coming, as Luke says in that chapter, to the end of himself. It's the person who, because of the work of the Spirit, has become so convinced of their need, they realize that only God can deliver them from the spot that they are in. That's what Jesus means. I gotta be honest with you. When I was a little kid and I was dreaming of what I would be when I grew up, that was not it. You know, when I was lying in my bed and thinking about the future, I was dreaming of being the big sports star like a lot of young guys my age. I wanted to end up being like Jorge Soler, hitting the home run in the World Series and then pounding my chest, which was awesome or Keely Ringo catching the interception at the end of the national championship. Sorry, Jeff. (laughs) And if it wasn't going to be sports, if it wasn't going to be sports, whatever I was going to go into, I wanted to be successful. I wanted to be someone who did it myself, who didn't depend on anybody. And you think about it, there's even a a Christian version of this, right? There's one, a version of this view of flourishing that we, we picture here even in the church. It's the person who doesn't struggle with any of the major sins, whose life seems fairly put together, who doesn't curse, drink, or smoke, who serves in the right places and has the respect of the right people, who has certain titles, whose life is all tied up in this nice, neat little bow. That is what we think of as flourishing. That is what we aspire to be. And yet Jesus here says, no, flourishing looks absolutely, totally different in the kingdom of God. It is an unsettling vision, yet ultimately it is a freeing one because what is Jesus inviting us to do? He's inviting us to embrace reality. 
This is hope for people who have longed to flourish and have always fallen short. This is hope for people who maybe in the eyes of the world, they've ascended the mountain and discovered that what was there would look like fullness. It was hollow and empty and ultimately it was something that left them poorer than they had felt before. This is hope for those who look in the mirror in the morning and see the vast gap between who they project themselves to be and who they actually are. Jesus says that poverty of spirit, that is not something to run from. That is not something to hide from. That is not something to distance yourself from. Instead, it is a gift of God's spirit that is not just to be tasted at one moment and then turned from, but cultivated all the days of your life because it brings you face to face with the truth. That you and I, we are dependent people created by a creator made all the more dependent because of human sin. To use the language of scripture, we're the dead in need of raising. We're the lost who need to be found. And you might hear that and go, well, how in the world is that flourishing? Why would that be something not just to be received but cultivated and cherished? And just as why? Because the one who's poor in spirit is being driven out of himself, out of trusting in his own strength and his own resources and the things that he can get his hands on and instead to trust in one who is in the flesh good news to the poor. The one who is all sufficient in every way, Jesus Christ himself. When Jesus came into this world, he was under no illusions about you, what you and I were. It wasn't like Jesus showed up and suddenly was like, man, what is wrong with all these people? He knew. As Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.15, he came into this world for one purpose, to save sinners. Jesus knows what we are. He's not surprised by our need. And as Keller is fond of saying, Jesus sees us to the bottom and yet he has loved us to the skies. Here is one who had all riches in heaven and on earth, who needed and wanted nothing. And yet out of love for us, he became poor. The poorest man this world has ever seen. And through his poverty, the poverty that we see on the cross, the poverty of one stripped of everything and yet clinging to the hope he had in his Father in heaven, Jesus takes the poor and he makes them rich. In Matthew 5, 3, Jesus says, I see you and I do not despise you. And if you will but lay down your pride, I will give you the one thing you need most of all, the gift of the kingdom. Blessed are the poor in spirit, verse three says, for theirs is, right now, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you're like me, that phrase, the kingdom of heaven, that's one that, that can feel a little slippery sometimes. 
But if we just want to sum it up in just one sentence what it is, it is shorthand for the fullness of God's salvation. It is the work that Jesus has come to do to bring full healing to our souls and our bodies, to take everything that sin has done to break this world that God made and to restore it and make it whole. And it is a kingdom that we as God's people receive now in part and later in full. You see this even in the Beatitudes. Uh, Verse 3 is in the present tense. This is yours right now. But then look at the rest of the Beatitudes. Their future. You will be comforted. You will inherit the earth. There is something that is still waiting. The hope of the kingdom is that in this life we have in Christ the forgiveness of our sins. We have, as those who were once God's enemies, adoption as children. We have a God who loves us, cares for us, provides for us, who calls on us to call to him, who hears our voices, who knows our hearts, who knows our need and meets it at every turn. And then in the future, we have the hope of resurrection from the dead and life everlasting with the Father. This expectation that there will come a day when Jesus will return and he will usher us into a world where tears will be wiped away and death will be no more, when every injustice will be made right and suffering and sorrow will be banished and every single thing will be made whole. Jesus says, that is the kingdom I have come to give to you. And our hearts immediately go, well, Jesus, what do I need to give in return? And Jesus, Jesus says, nothing. Only your need. You know, we sang just a few moments ago, in a beautiful version of that song, by the way, this hymn called Come Ye Sinners. It's one of my favorite hymns. And one of my favorite verses in that hymn says this, Let not conscience make you linger, nor a fitness fondly dream. All the fitness, all the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. And this, this he gives you. This he gives you. Tis the Spirit's rising being. To the one that Jesus gives the gift of poverty, Jesus says, I give with it the gift of the kingdom. Do you feel your need of Jesus this morning? Jesus says, don't walk, run to me. All that I require is that you feel your need of him. You know, I've read through the Bible at this point more times than I can count. And I have yet to find one instance where someone came to Jesus in need and Jesus turned them away. What makes us think we'll be the first? Jesus is more eager to give than you and I are to ask. Now, there's a lot of things that we could say coming out of this, but I want to leave us today with just two. And the first is this. There is only one thing that will bar you from this kingdom. Just one. And it's pride. If poverty of spirit is the doorway into the kingdom of heaven through Jesus Christ, then richness of spirit is the one thing that will keep you out. I mean, you see this all through the Gospels. It's why the rich young ruler, this one, this guy who thinks that he's kept all of God's commandments, it's why when Jesus says to him, sell all you have and follow me, give it to the poor. 
It's why he goes away sad. Because he doesn't yet know his need. He still thinks that he can trust in himself and in the things that he has. It's why the scribes and the Pharisees are so angry at Jesus because Jesus, who they think should be spending time with them, is spending all of his time with tax collectors and prostitutes, with sinners of the lowest possible class. And Jesus isn't saying to them, you can't come and eat with me. What's happening is this. They don't want to admit that they need Jesus just as desperately as the prostitutes do. It's pride. And perhaps nowhere more clearly does Jesus hammer this point home than in Luke 18. In Luke 18, Jesus tells a parable. He says, two men went into the temple to pray. One of them was a Pharisee a member of the religious class, someone who on the surface would seem close to God. The other, the other was a tax collector, a member of a group so despised that they were seen not just as traitors to the people of Israel, but as traitors to Israel's God. And Jesus, according to Luke, he tells this parable to an audience of people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Jesus says the Pharisee, he went into the temple and he stood in the center and he lifted his eyes up to heaven and he said, thank God that I am not like other men, like extortioners, the unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector, can you feel the finger being pointed? I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get, unlike this guy. I do the things I'm supposed to do. I keep the rules I'm supposed to keep. Then God, I'm not like him. And then Jesus says, the tax collector, he stood in the back corner with his eyes staring at the floor. And in tears, he beat his breast and he prays one thing. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And the implicit question, the implicit question running through the whole parable is this. Which one do you think will go home justified? Jesus says it's not the one you think. It's not the one who thought he was rich. It's the one who knew he was poor down into his very soul. The one who humbles himself, Jesus says, will be exalted. And the one who exalts himself, he will be humbled. And where does that pride, where does that desire to exalt ourselves show itself? In the way we view other people. You know, we live in a moment culturally where we may be more polarized than we have ever been. And this danger, I think, presents itself to us more acutely than maybe it even has in the past. It's always been there, but it's strong right now. Do you find yourself looking at other people and thinking of them as them? Do you find yourself looking at certain groups, not as image bearers of God to be loved and sacrificed for, but instead as enemies to be defeated and even destroyed? Do you find yourself hearing other people's views about God or politics or race or justice or sexuality or gender or any number of other things? Maybe even hearing things from people in your own denomination who share the same theological commitments but maybe just defer on one issue. 
and finding yourself thinking, how stupid could that person be? Thank God I'm not like that. And before you think that I'm addressing this to you, I'm giving you these questions because they're ones I'm directing at myself. I'm the man. If we find ourselves doing that, then what Jesus would say, Jesus would say, wake up. You think you're rich, but really you are poor. And the one who enters into my kingdom, it's not the one who comes thinking they have something others don't. It's the one who comes as a child with nothing and receives from me everything. The second thing is this. Growth in the Christian life doesn't look like growth in the world outside. In the same way that entrance into this kingdom looks upside down, so, do, so too does growth. You know, when I, when I came to Christ, uh, I think I had a very simplistic vision of what the Christian life was supposed to look like. Jesus was supposed to save me, and then everything was just supposed to get better. If my life was a chart, it was going to be one line just going like this. Sins were going to fall away. Uh, I would begin to be more conformed to Christ. There would be greater intimacy, greater joy. Everything would just get better and better and better and better until one day I died and went to heaven to be with Jesus. Or he came back and you know, the trumpet sounded and the kingdom came. That was the vision. Now, maybe you were wiser than me and you had a more improved, mature vision than I did. My guess is most of us at least implicitly didn't. How did that work out for most of us? Is that what happened? Because I gotta be honest, my chart didn't go like this. Instead, it did a lot more of this. There were these moments where I would feel this closeness to God when things would seem to be falling into place, and then there were the valleys where I would find myself wondering, God, do I even know you at all? Jesus, am I even one of your people? And it was in one of those valleys, right in the middle of my time in seminary, which is a great place to go through a valley, by the way, I was hitting this place where I just felt like I was ramming my head into a wall, like the growth that I thought was supposed to be happening wasn't. I couldn't seem to shake certain sins. I couldn't seem to escape certain things. Things were hard and they were difficult. And I went and I sat down with my pastor, a dear man named Jay Simmons. And I just laid it all out to him, crying in a coffee shop, which is always awesome for everyone else around you. And Jay, being a wise pastor, for a while he just listened. And then he asked me this. He said, Caleb, what do you think the point of the Christian life is? What's the point of sanctification? Now, I was in seminary, and I was weeping in this coffee shop, but I still wanted to give a good answer because I, you know, I'm supposed to know these things. And so I was like, well, conformity to Christ, growth and holiness. And Jay just kind of shook his head at me. He said, those are important. And they're a part of it, don't get me wrong. That's not the point. The point is knowing Jesus. It is coming to a greater and greater dependence upon him because you realize that he ultimately is the one thing you truly need. It is a life where Jesus daily becomes more and more precious to you. He couldn't have surprised me more if he'd slapped me in the face. And I have never forgotten that conversation 
because he invited me to look at growth in the Christian life, not as I imagined it to be, but as Matthew 3 tells us it's going to be. Maturity in Christ is not this ever-increasing development of competencies. You know, I think sometimes we want it to be that, not because we love Jesus, but because we don't want to actually have to depend on him. Matthew 5.3 says, no, here's what maturity in Christ looks like. It is every day seeing that your need, it is an infinite hole to which there is no bottom. And yet there is in Jesus one who has infinite riches that he gives freely and fully to all who are in him. The one who's mature in Christ, as John Newton says, it's the one whose ever-present mindfulness of their weakness is actually their strength because they are casting themselves into the arms of Jesus. It's the one who knows their situation, it is grievous, but it is not desperate because they are in the arms of a gracious and infallible physician and in his hands they will not die but live. It is the one being driven out of themselves and into Jesus more and more and more until the day that he returns. And that, that's the invitation of Matthew 5.3. It is to see flourishing, not through the eyes of the flesh, but instead through the eyes of faith. To see that the one who is truly flourishing is the one who has Jesus, even if they have absolutely nothing else, which means the poorest child in Haiti may actually be more wealthy in the eyes of God than the richest man in Manhattan. It's to see in Jesus the one who's all sufficient, the one who is actually good news for the poor, the raiser of the dead and the forgiver of sins who says to us, do you feel your need of me? Then come, the Spirit bids you, and I would give you everything that you require. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We may be great sinners, Jesus is a greater savior, and it is Jesus who pronounces that blessing to us. Gracious Father, we're thankful that we have such a kind and tender Savior. Lord, that you come not for the righteous, but for sinners. That you come, Lord, not to people who have anything to offer you, but Lord, instead to those who can bring only their need, and Lord, you supply for it in Jesus in full. Would you open our eyes, would you open our hearts, and would you make us a people who are truly poor in spirit, all our days, in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.